Okay, so we are going to tackle a light and fluffy uh, chapter or book of the Bible called, called Job. Um, you may be familiar with it. It's, it's famous. Um, so here's what I want to do. We're talking about contextual revolution and how we put putting our, our scriptures and making sure that we are searching them out, that we are using the word of God as a foundation to our life and that we're that we're understanding it by, by putting it into context. And I want to give you a little bit of context for the book of Job. And I, I'm going to use a lot of words today, so, um, I, but I've put some up on the screen for verses and things so you don't have to be flipping through your phone uh, the whole time. So <clears throat> Job, the context of this, Job gets nailed by Satan and he ends up losing his seven sons, his three daughters, all of his cattle and his possessions. And the only thing that remains in Job's life is, is his wife. Um, and unfortunately, that wasn't the greatest blessing at, at that particular time. Now, normally I would say that would be all, all that you need. But her, her advice to Job in this situation was curse God and die. And so um, that's kind of where Job was, was at. Um, and, uh, and then in, in Job 1, 20 and 21, it says this, At this, Job got up and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and then he fell to the ground in worship. This is a standard ancient Near East way of, of grieving. Um, and, uh, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Not in all of what he just said, but through this series of circumstances up until this point, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And so the question that I want to ask this morning is, are we to believe that every blessing we have is the Lord giving and every loss is the Lord taking away? And as, as a pastor, should, I, should that be my line of advice when people come to me with, with horrific things that have happened and losses and stuff that they've walked through to just tell them, well, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And, and, and if you do a search for even for headlines that say, if you, did, if you got on Google and said, uh, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, news headlines, you will find people who are, who are using this scripture within uh, our culture at, at some of the most devastating moments and times to explain God and to, to explain what God is doing and how he's functioning in and around people's lives and how they're walking through hard and difficult things. And so we want to look at this scripture this morning and we want to put it in context and we just want to ask this question, is this a healthy theological response for us to be able to say um, that we would believe that every blessing that comes is from God and everything that is taken away is also taken away by God and that our, that our only and best response is that we would just say, God, we worship you whether you are giving or whether you are killing, we, we worship you and that's, what we're, that's how we're supposed to, to, to respond to this. And so I want, I want to contend this morning. Or, or propose that uh, if we put this scripture into its actual and, and original context, that this is not a theology that we are supposed to accept. It is, the book of Job is actually teaching us that we're supposed to reject this theology, and the beginning of this passage is a journey that Job goes on with God, where he's learning that this is not, in fact, the appropriate response 
to the things that are happening in his life. And so we're going to look at that and, and see, if that, see if that's what Scripture bears out. And so, um, as I've shared, in, in the context is so vital to understanding Scripture. We have a lot of ways that we look at, at context. The first way that when we're looking at Scripture, when we're studying Scripture, and, um, and, I, and I promise you guys, I know I, I teased you a few weeks ago with an inductive Bible study class that we're going to start doing on Tuesday nights. I haven't forgotten that. We're going to do it. It's going to be amazing. One of the things that we practice in inductive Bible study is learning how to do uh, contextual studies. And, and the main way that we study the Word is by putting it into the context of it, uh, the Bible within its own context. And the secondary thing within scriptural context is does it line up with the revelation that Jesus Christ gave us of who the Father is. And so within Scripture, we want the way that we interpret passages to line up with the Word of God and with the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then we want to look at things we want to look at things like uh, the, 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 the historical context and the, the cultural context at the time. What's going on historically when, this, when these passages were written? What's going on culturally when these passages are written? It's important that we don't pull Scripture out and go, this is what it means to me now in 2017. When we're studying Scripture, our goal is to find out what it meant to the original author who wrote it and the original person who read it. That's original intent. That's what we try to get to when we study Scripture and when we practice studying Scripture. And so, and then one of the ways that we do that is through literary context. We want to know what type of literature we're actually dealing with when we come to study a passage of, uh, of the Word. And so the literary context of Job, if you're reading Job, if you've read through Job, you notice that it doesn't quite flow the way a normal historical book would be. Um, and, and people aren't talking in there the way they normally talk. It's very poetic. It's very lyrical. It's very dramatic, um, and, and scholars agree that Job as a genre, uh, as a type of literature, is what we call an ancient epic dramatization, an, or a dramatic poem, and it's to be understood and it's to be un, uh, interpreted as a, as a poem or as a parable. It is to be interpreted similar to the way that you would interpret Psalms or the way that you would interpret Jesus' parables and what he taught from, and so that's what Job is, and I want us to get that in our mind as we begin to look at these passages of Scripture and the verses that we're going to be looking at today, that it is not something where I would go and go, I want to study the deep theology of God by reading David's words in Psalms where he's just being gut-level honest and he's pouring out his heart and go, oh, there's good theology. I want to build my life around that. I understand that it is an expression. It is a creation. It is a poetic uh, uh, utterance of David, and I'm looking at it through that lens so that as I interpret it, I know what's going on and I know what type of literature it is. And and and, and Job is, is similar to that. So as we put our our thinking caps on I want us to understand at the beginning of this message that that's the the uh, little uh, the, the context that we're looking at for for the book of Job and so like a lot of uh, these dramatic poems these ancient dramatic poems that were that were written at the time uh, there is a prologue that helps us understand what it is that we're trying to learn us as the reader and what is the author writing and so the prologue in this is is basically this literary device that we get information we get secret information ooh, um, about what is happening that Job and his friends and his wife and everybody else involved they don't get any of this information that we get at the beginning of this book and so we have to think well why are we getting this extra prologue why are we getting this information here at the beginning it's so that we will have this understanding so we can get the main point of the book of Job. And so the, the, the prologue to this is that there is the secret story that we get entered into is this conflict between God and Satan and the, and the characters who, who, 
who are being influenced by this. They don't know about this conflict that's going on, but we get to find out about it, and, uh, and that's helping us understand what's happening. So in Job 1, 6 and 7, we, we get this picture. One day the angels come to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord says to Satan, said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. What is this literary device that's happening here in this prologue? It's not that we're drawing theology from it that go, oh, guess what? God doesn't know where Satan is sometimes. Therefore, God's not all-knowing, right? But if we're playing that game where we're, we're pulling strict doctrine and theology out of the book of Job, there is hundreds of passages where I could do that and I could mess with you all day long and go, well, this passage is telling me that God doesn't know everything and that Satan comes and goes as he pleases and he does this or, God has to, or Satan has to ask permission all, for everything that, God, that he does. All the time, he's got to go check in with God and they play this big game of cosmic Simon says, God, can I do this? No. God, can I do that? Yes. Can I cause an earthquake? Yes. Can I give this person that parking space they want? No. Can I, can, can I get their air conditioning to work? No. But God, please, they, you know, like it's not, this is, we wouldn't read this story and think that that's what's actually happening here because we're not trying to draw theology from this poem. We're learning a lesson from this poem. And so, uh, so anyway, he, where have you come from? But the idea, what is trying to be illustrated here is that this is not some sort of plan that God is orchestrating as saying, I invited Satan to come and then I I put my whole plan together and it was amazing. It was just this kind of random thing. We're having a gathering and here's Satan. He's showing up. And so they're, they're painting a picture to help us get, a, get the main point of what's going on here. And so, and then we go down to Job uh, 1, 9 through 11. And as, as Satan and God are talking, uh, God brings up Job. And there's a lot that goes into this and what's going on around this. But the reality, if I could say it in a nutshell, the reality is this, is that sin has broken out, that Satan has power over the world. He already has power over Job. He is inflicting, he is going about the earth, and he is inflicting his power and his authority because of sin on humanity. And God says to him, hey, what's going on? It's not working. He's comparing and contrasting and going, look at this guy, Job. You're out there running around trying to mess with him, trying to do stuff, and he is upstanding, and he is righteous. It's amazing. And he's comparing uh, Job's righteousness with Satan's attempts to, to pull him down and to destroy him. And, and, and then, <clears throat> then Satan replies this way. He says, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch forth your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your faith, your face. So Satan makes this charge against God's character. It's not a surprise that he worships you because look at all the stuff that you do for him. And that's the main question of this book is does anybody worship God just because of who God is or is he this manipulative, controlling, string-pulling God who gets his way by dangling a carrot and saying, I want you to go do this thing and then when we get off course just smashing us. Is this how, is, does anybody worship God for who God is and his essence and, and his beauty and his power and his wonder or is it all because of what we get in the equation and that is what Satan is accusing God of of saying nobody worships you on earth they only worship you because 
of what you give them. And, and, and so this is the challenge that is being issued, and this is the question that's being laid out to us as the readers. Does anybody worship God for who he is? And so um, uh, in, in Job 1.12, the Lord said to Satan, Very well, then everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Again, we're not drawing theology from this. We're drawing an, an opportunity to learn the lesson. Why would he put this in there? Why would he express this? Because he wants us to understand that it was not God who reached out. Even though Satan said, reach out your hand and touch him, God made it very clear that it wasn't him who was reaching out and touching him. It was Satan who was already operating in the power uh, and that authority on earth. And, uh, and he said, but don't lay a, don't, don't, oh, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Why? Because there is a progression that we are learning within the story of how this give and take and what is happening. So, so then, in is, but we know that it is not God who is doing this. This is on Satan. And it says, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he did all of these things in Job 2.7. And so we want to make sure that we notice that this isn't God, that he, Satan even went out from God's presence to do these terrible things that he inflicted on Job. So, <clears throat> where did I set my water? Maybe that, maybe it's over there. Thank you. So Job becomes the victim. He's caught up in this story. Um, and God uses this journey that he walks through to prove that he's not a controlling, manipulative God. Uh, Job doesn't know that this is the conflict that's going on, but we get to watch it unfold. And, um, and we see that Job is suffering precisely because he is righteous and that's an important thing that we understand is that he wasn't being punished that he wasn't saying you're gonna you if you're good you get good things if you're bad you get you get punished and so we know that that he's he's suffering precisely because he is he is righteous and that's a challenge to a lot of the thinking even that's around us today and and i know we we believe in god and we're and we're christians and we're all very awesome but uh but sometimes i think that we interact we honestly interact with god in that way of saying if things are going good in my life it's because god is blessing me and if things aren't going so well in my life i've probably done something wrong and god is punishing me i remember uh being in college and going on a on a mission trip to tijuana and we would go down into tijuana and we would take a bunch of clothes and we would go down and hand out clothes and hang out with the, with the kids and and one day we jumped in the car to, to go and these, these two, I was riding with these two girls and the car wouldn't start. And she goes, oh, there's somebody, somebody's got sin in their life. And I was like, oh, no, you did not. <laughs> but that's, that's a lot of times how we begin to function, but that's karma. That's, that's not grace. And, and yet, yet it infiltrates our, our belief system. It says if things are going good, I'm good. If things are going bad, something's clearly clearly wrong and if job is suffering because he's righteous it sort of turns that on its on its ear job was righteous and he still and he still suffered and so and that's what this poem and this parable is is trying to to teach us and it's disproving it's disproving satan's theology that god is this self-serving manipulative control freak a puppeteer god and and, 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 and Satan's incorrect accusation is actually shared by Job. It's shared by Job's friends. And the Job's friends, they basically believe it this way. They think God is pulling all the strings, but God is just. And if God is just and he's pulling all the strings, then if something is happening to somebody, it's God's justice. They must have screwed up. They must have done something wrong. It's really easy to be the person who's trying to make that uh, discernment for other people. But that's a little bit how they were, they were responding to this. And um, that somehow, Job, you deserve 
deserve this. And they came to him over and over and saying, Job, think about your life. You have sinned. You have clearly sinned because this is happening to you. And in Job 4, 7 through 9, they say to him, consider now. And Job is pushing back on this because he knows that he's righteous. He's like, I don't think there's sin in my life. Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? Um, As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God, they perish. At the blast of his anger, they are no more. Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. This is their big uh, reasoning. Well, I think every single one of us could tell of many, many innocent people in our own lives who have perished, who have, who have had terrible things happen to them. So that doesn't even make any sense. Where were the upright ever destroyed? Um, Jesus uh, all of the disciples, uh, everybody in the New Testament, uh, people throughout the world today, uh, this, is, this just doesn't make any sense. It is a burying my head in the sand theology. I don't want to deal in reality. I want to deal in my little formulas so that I can judge what is going on in other people's lives and somehow in, 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 and make things make sense to my own life. And uh, at the breath of God, they perish. At the blast of his anger, they are no more. So Job challenges this line of thinking. In actu- actually, in chapter 7, he says, you're speaking out of fear. They want security. They want a tidy little theology to believe that God is pulling all the strings, but as long as they're righteous, nothing bad will ever happen to them. That's what they want to believe, but Job is righteous and Job is suffering, and that causes them fear. And that is, the fear is that what has happened to Job could easily happen to them. <laughs> and so they, uh, they want to hold on to these formulas that they believe will protect them. And, and, and so I, I think that you and I, we all kind of do the same, same thing. So if I, if I just believe this and I say this and I do this and I avoid this sin, then God will bless me. I'll have a hedge of protection. I don't actually know what a hedge of protection is, and I don't know why bushes suddenly became like the, the gold standard for safety. Um, but my mom always prayed it over me, so I'm pretty sure it's what got me this far. Uh, so if, if I do these things, nothing bad will ever happen to me or my kids or my marriage or my finances. And we, we grab onto these simplistic formulas and we erase the mystery of God and, uh, and then sometimes we force those formulas onto other people as we watch them and watch what's happening in their, in their life. And so when we let fear rule our theology, we, um, we end up indicting everybody who ever had anything bad happen to them or their kids. And if the reason why I'm safe is because I'm righteous, then the reason that that happened to them is because you weren't. And that doesn't work at all. So fearful, formulaic theologies, they always indict people or they indict God for what is wrong in and around our lives. And how do we know this is wrong? Really quickly. Jesus, he's just, <laughs> it was like my Sunday school answer. Anybody have, anybody want to answer? Jesus, I know. How do we know that this theology is wrong? Jesus, because Jesus is the central revelation of God. And he, he refutes this at every single turn 
in his ministry. He comes into a world that is overrun by sickness and shame and, and brokenness. And does he show up and say, oh, yeah, my dad did that to you. And, oh, yep, that's my dad, and that's my dad, and that's my dad. No, he comes and he shows up and he just heals and he restores and he sets right. He is the central revelation of God's heart. So how do we know that this fearful formulaic theology is wrong? Because Jesus shows us that it is wrong. He is showing us the Father. God refutes it at the end of Job. He comes and he hangs out with Job and he doesn't just say, well, Job, deal with it, man. You know, shades come down. Deal with it. It's not his response. Are you guys even, is it 2017? Am I the only one that's on the internet with the deal with it guy? Okay. Um, God doesn't come and just tell him to deal with it. He actually comes and he interacts with Job and he begins to ask questions and he enters into his pain and he enters into his hurt and he engages with him and and, and he's not just saying oh yeah I forgot to mention to you that I'm God and whatever I do is just because it's God and you just uh, you got to deal with it that's not his response he actually engages and and reminds him of who he is and he wraps his life in this beautiful mystery and awe and wonder of God where not everything has a bow on it that's perfect. So, and then God refutes this by chastising Job's three friends. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. In Job 42.7, and the Lord said these things to Job. Uh, <clears throat> after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the, the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as your servant Job has. So what they said was wrong, and the book records God rebuking them for this theology that says if something bad is happening, it's because God is in control, he's pulling all the strings, he's just, and you screwed up. And he said, that's not how this is working, and God came and challenged them in that, in that place. Um, so jumping down to, uh, to Job, <clears throat> this is the verse that, that I want to talk about. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's all God's doing. He has given. He has taken away. And it is okay. And I bless the Lord. This is my response. The problem is that that's where Job begins. But as Job's pain increases, as his circumstances get worse, as his, as his despair sets in, suddenly his responses are not so pious. They are not so stoic. He doesn't, it's not that he's not accusing God anymore. On this next slide, I have a bunch of scriptures, and I'm not going to read all of them. <clears throat> but uh, look at this, Job 9, 17. So he starts out by saying, the Lord gives and takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Um, and then he's saying things like this in Job 9, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He's saying, God is not just. You're doing these things to me, God, without any wrongdoing and without cause. Job 9, 22. It's all the same. That is why I say he destroyed, destroys both the blameless and the wicked, uh, he has no sense of justice when a scourge, scourge binds, brings sudden death. He mocks the despair of the innocent. This is Job's accusation against God, that he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. Um, if it is not he who is doing this, then who is doing it, Job asks. This is an accusation, a slander against God's character that is actually very similar to the one that Satan brought against God at the beginning of 
the book. God, Job can't even consider that the judges would actually make themselves unjust by the, by the way they make decisions, so he assumes that it is God who is unjust. Job 10, 16 and 17, you hunt me. This is him talking to God. You, <laughs> the Lord gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or you hunt me as a fierce lion, and again you display your power against me. Uh, he's, he's portraying God as a lion who hunts his prey and doesn't kill the prey, but just plays with it and keeps it alive and toys with it. You bring new witnesses against me and increase your anger against me. Leave me alone that I, that I might find a little comfort. I'm going to title my next book that. I'm going to use Job 10. God, leave me alone that I may find a little bit of comfort. But this is Job. This is how sincerely he believes that it is God who is inflicting him and who's doing these things to, uh, to him. Is this stuff that we're supposed to be approving of? Is this, is this a theology that we're supposed to be embracing and living in? I believe that this book is telling us, no, this is actually bad theology. We're not supposed to be living under this and espousing it and repeating it. Um, he's, he's compared God to a roaring lion. And I'm pretty sure that Job didn't know 1 Peter 5.8, but in 1 Peter 5.8, because of the sequence of events. But in 1 Peter 5, 8, he, he, Satan is compared to a lion who what? Who roams around seeking to, to devour. And this is what Job is comparing God to. A lion who, who roams around and seeks to devour. Job 69, his anger has torn me and persecuted me. He has gnashed me with his teeth. My adversary locks eyes with me. He is calling God his adversary now. He gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What he's actually showing us in this, in this book is that, that that lie at the beginning as a simple little seed that sounds religious and pious, what it eventually grows into is bitterness and despair and accusation against God that grows and grows and grows. But it makes sense. If this is how Job is picturing God, it would be appropriate that he would believe God was doing all of these things and he would see him as a lion and he would see him as an adversary, but he doesn't have the insight that we have of the heavenly battle that is taking place. So he doesn't have that prologue, that information that's so vital to go, oh, this is what's going on, is that God was putting something powerful on display of his goodness and saying, I'm not just a God who manipulates. I'm not just a God who, who gets what I want by giving people protection and things. God is not our adversary. He was not Job's adversary. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What would we gain if we were to pray to him? This is how bitter his heart has gotten. I'm not even going to pray anymore. The, in his great power, God grasps my clothing. He binds me like the collar, by the collar of my garment. He throws me into the mud, and I am reduced to dust and ashes. You have become cruel to me. With the strength of your hand, you attack me. The Lord gives and the Lord takes sounds nice, but this is where we end up. And God wraps up this book in Job, in Job 30, chapters 38 through 42, and he comes and he interacts with Job and he's asking him these questions. One, he's asking him questions about creation. Did I consult with you when I laid the stars? Did I show you these things uh, when, when, we, when we put things together? Do you know where the rain goes? Do you know how the dew works? Do you know any of this stuff? Like, where, where were you, Job, when, when everything was created? And Job has this, this amazing 
humble heart to hear God and to understand that he is talking about things that he doesn't understand and he's putting accusation on God about things that are not God's heart, his intent, and that he doesn't understand anything about and he has this wake-up call and then he says, what about the Leviathan and the behemoth? Um, uh, the behemoth. He, 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 these are not. These are not like dinosaurs in Job. Uh, I don't. I don't. I'm sorry for if it's like the Christian science guy that Christian scientist. No, that not that. The guy who travels around and talks about the dinosaurs. This is not dinosaurs. This is not dragons. This is actually in the ancient Near East. This is simply a depiction of evil and evil forces that people believed in that they would roam around the earth and nobody could stop them. Nobody could do anything. And, and God asks him these questions about these two forces of evil. And they said, they're beyond your ability to understand. Can you get a sword and can you go kill them? Can you take your spear and go stab them? Oh, wait, no, they eat iron. You can't do that. Um, and so he's telling them, you don't know what you don't know. You don't understand the depth of things that are going on, but you don't have this place to accuse me in what's happening here and letting your heart go to that place. And he, and he says, who is this? He's speaking of Job. God says, who is this who darkens counsel without understanding? And Job gets it because Job ends up repenting of this theology that started out in Job chapter one and carried throughout the whole and he says, I've declared without understanding things too wonderful for me to know, and I repent in dust and ashes. This is the point. Uh, we're not to believe and repeat this theology. That's what this whole book was refuting. And it is tragic that the book that was intended to refute the idea that God is the one who is behind all of our suffering and curses and the things that happen in our life has actually become a book that people use to make that very point doesn't endorse that it opposes it and stands in opposition to it i'm almost done thank you guys for hanging in <laughs> and to answer the question does anybody worship god because he's god go back to job 42 1 through 6 with me again then job replied to the lord i know that you can do all things no purpose of yours can be thwarted he has this great revelation of god you asked who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And you said, listen now, and I will speak. I, have question, I will question you, and you will answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That he had this revelation of God that said, before, I didn't even know you. I had heard of you, but I didn't know you. But through this process, now I have a revelation of you. My eyes have seen you, that something triggered and happened in Job's life that brought him to a place where he is actually worshiping God for God's greatness, for God's knowledge, and for God's power. And it is answering the key question of the book. Does anybody just worship God for who he is? And that's where Job is brought to, of saying, I repent before you. You are a great God and I worship you, and I honor you. And so, <clears throat> this is the point of Job, that we need to practice saying these words. Um, we, I, where, where's my notes? Whoa, we need to practice saying this. Oh, here it is, I got it. We need to practice saying this, I don't know. And for all of us to be able to practice saying, I don't know, I don't have 
all the answers. I don't have this fear-based formulaic theology that I want to roll out to someone who's having a hard time and say, well, here's what's happened. You've clearly sinned and against God and this bad thing is happening because of that. We don't know what's going on in the, in the spiritual realm. We don't understand the battles that are happening. We don't, we don't have that revelation and it's good for us to sometimes just say, I don't know. But it's not good enough that we would walk around just saying, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. We need to key in on what we do know. What is it that we know? And we know these things. One, that God is revealing himself to our heart throughout the process of whatever it is that we are walking through. We know that. We may not know everything, but we know that God is revealing himself to you, to me, to all of us through whatever it is that we have walked through or are walking through, that he is not leaving us on our own. And like Job, even if we mess up, even if we say crazy things, if we just stay in communication with God, God stayed fully engaged with Job. He wasn't put off by the crazy stuff and the and the probably really bad theology and some times blasphemous things that Job was saying because why because he was staying true to his heart and God was able to engage him he wasn't worried about Job being accurate in his theology he was worried about Job being honest in his heart what God values is not accuracy what God values is that we stay honest with him in whatever it is that we find ourselves in and that we invite him into that process and trust that he's going to reveal himself to us even through that process Too often we've heard about God and we've crafted religious formulas to make it through stuff. But what I want is to say we are people who have had a revelation to say we have seen God. And it is often through walking through mysteries like this in our life that we see God in powerful ways. And I want us to embrace that reality. What I assumed that I knew about God wasn't true. What I've discovered about him in this time is absolutely foundational now to my life going forward and that we would be people who would be able to say that and that's the point of Job again that we would trust God and that we would know that it's okay that we don't know but we do know that he's revealing himself to us through the process and that we do know what God reveals of himself through Jesus Christ God looks like Jesus Christ coming to those who would kill him and oppose him and and dying and giving his life to them for those enemies that crucified him we don't know um What we do know is that while this world can be terrible, God is not terrible. While this world can dish out tragedy, God is not behind the tragedy. We know that the world and Satan and demons and fallen human beings can bring devastation, but God is the life giver. He is not on the side of devastation. He is on the side of life. He's not on the side of taking. He is on the side of giving and we shouldn't try to discern the character of God by looking around at the broken world around us we should try to discern the character of God by looking at Jesus Christ the author and the perfecter of our faith that's who we should be looking at and when we try to get the image of God from the broken world around us that hinders our ability to see him clearly when we are hindered in our ability to see him clearly when we go through hell when something breaks when we lose somebody we we we're afraid to invite God into that place because we have a broken image of who he is we think even maybe in our core that he might be the one that's behind this how are we going to invite a God into our suffering into our most vulnerable places into our pain into our weakness if we believe that he is the author of it but if we discern his character by looking at the broken world around us instead of looking at Jesus Christ it's going to be easy for us to dismiss God from our most hurting places and we don't invite him in but if we know he's like Jesus 
we go, come, come into this place because Jesus is a master of taking broken things and making them whole. He's a master of taking failure and turning it into victory. He's a master of taking, taking sickness and making it into health. He's a master of restoration. Of, uh, this is who Jesus is, and if that's our revelation, we'll invite him in, even into the most difficult things that we are walking through in our life right now. And if we understand the true character of God, and what it is, and we dare to believe that he is as beautiful as he's revealed to be in Christ, we will have an open invitation to our heart, to our failures, to our fears, to our brokenness, and say, come in, come into that place. I'm not blaming you, and I'm not accusing you. I'm not just gonna say, he gives and he takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, because I see where that road takes me. I see that accusation against God brings me to a place of despair and bitterness and accusation against God. I want him to come in and restore and make whole and believe that it is Jesus who came and said, I have come to give life and give life to the full. The enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I come to give abundant life. God is always on the side of abundant life. Satan and demons and fallen people, they can be on the side of the stealing. They can be on the side of the killing. They can be on the side of the destroying, but God is not the killer. He is not the destroyer. He is not the thief. We get to answer and ask him, sorry, we get to ask him to come into those places. Romans 8, 28, I'll finish with this. You guys are awesome. Hanging in, this is a lot. I was laughing at myself, thinking, oh, we're going to tackle Job, all of it. Let's do this. Um, Romans 8, 28, this is a verse that's been hijacked a little bit by our misunderstanding of Job. Uh, many of us know this verse to say, God works all things together for good, as if everything that we've done or has been done to us, the tragedies, the failures, will magically be turned into good things. But when you study this verse in its original language, a different verse begins to emerge, and it says something more like this, God works together in all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. He doesn't have to make everything good to work for your good in everything. The good he is accomplishing isn't by fixing everything that's happened. It's, it's by meeting you in these, good, in these things, good, bad, tragic, and terrible. He wants to meet you in that place, and he wants to work in you for your good because he loves you and because he has called you according to his purposes. It's not a magic wand where he goes, oh, I've made everything good. Look back at your past and the failures, the, 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 the losses, the death, the, the this or the that. Look at all of that stuff. Isn't it good now? And you're going to be like, no, no, that's, that's not good at all. Romans 8, 28 is not working. I thought you were supposed to make all things good so that I could just look and go, that's good. No, but he is working in all of things, all those things for your good because he loves you and because you are called according to his purposes and you'll be able to look back at that stuff and while it may not have the same hold and the same effect on you, you're gonna be able to say, God, that was a tragedy and I thank you for meeting me in that place and bringing me through that place. And I think a better hero for us to end with, instead of Job, who admitted that when he said that line, he didn't even know God. So instead of looking at Job as our hero of the faith, I think a good person to look at is actually Joseph. Joseph understood rejection, slavery, accusation, slander, prison, betrayal, death, grief, grief and hopelessness. And, and, but in Genesis 50, 20, when he stood before his brothers who came and he, and, and he forgave them, and they are the very ones who betrayed him into a completely different life than what he expected his life to be. And he stood before them and he said this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. 
that we would look at the things in our life and we would say, the enemy meant to harm me with this. That he had a plan to destroy me. He had a plan to dismantle my life. He had a plan to undo me. He had a plan to turn everything against me. But God has worked in this, his good to accomplish the things that he wants to do in your life and the things that he wants to do through your life. That we would say, okay, these things that are coming against me aren't from God and they aren't good, but he's gonna take them He's going to turn them around and he's going to work for his good and for the purposes that he has for your life and for my life and for our lives together. So that's how I want us to look and want us to, to process the book of Job. Let me pray for you guys. Thank you so much. Lots of words. If you are in a place this morning where you would like prayer, um, just processing through grief or hurt or woundedness or something that's happened that you've been carrying and you've been in that place of bitterness and saying, I think I'm blaming God for this. I think I'm actually getting, getting to a place where my accusation and my heart is turning to say, God, did you do this? And because you are wondering if God's the one that did this thing to you, you're struggling to invite him into the safety of your heart and into the deep places of your heart. Um, we have a ministry team and I'm going to ask our ministry team just to make your way right now you can make your way to the back and just stand by those windows back there we've created some spaces back there and as as we leave this morning we would love to partner with you and just pray with you and break off any lies that God would be inflicting you that he would be the one who sent sickness that somehow that he would be trying to teach you some secret lesson that he's not going to explain to you uh, by this thing that God is good and he has good things for you the enemy is the one who steals and kills and destroys we want to partner with you to break off things in your life that are stealing that are killing you and that are destroying you those things are not from god if you don't see jesus coming to earth and inflicting people with sickness and brokenness and breaking their legs and saying now you know to be close to me this is not how god is going to respond and treat you because we see it in Jesus Christ and we want to pray with you that you would be free from that mindset and you would know that God loves you and he is safe and he has good things for you so that you can invite him in to the tragedies you can invite him into the grief you can invite invite him into the hurt not because he's going to fix it all he's going to work in it he's going to work in it for his good for your good because he loves you and because he's called you he's going to be with you in it and that's more important to many of us it's just important that he's with us in it not so much what the result is. And I want us to have a God that comes that near to us. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the revelation that you've given us of the Father. And we just stand humbly today and say, would you break off anything in our hearts and in our minds that would, that would put accusation against you, God, for the things that we struggle through and that happen? We don't know. We don't always know why. We don't know what's going on. But what we do know is that, God, this is not from you. It's not your heart. This is not what you have for us. And so we choose to believe that you are a God of abundance of life and life to the fullest. And as we walk through whatever we're walking through, I just give grace to every single person in this room that as you walk through whatever you're walking through, that you are not on a clock, you are not in a race, you do not have to have things figured out tomorrow. You don't, you're not more spiritual by having things all dialed in and figured out and fixed. You're not, you're not proving yourself to anybody. This is not a place for that. And just declare over you that he is with you in your process. He is with you in your journey. He is walking at your pace and he is, he is loving you and your heart is safe with him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you.